Well, I hope I can keep myself together. It's fantastic, isn't it? Fantastic news. We're going to read about uh, why this is the best day um, from God's word, which is trustworthy and true. Um, if you have one of these Bibles near you and you'd like to grab it, um, we are reading from page 1156, 1156, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 20, the resurrection of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that... He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it's I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is risen. I wonder if you feel you've got a purpose in life. What's your purpose? What's the meaning of life is another way of asking the question. What, what is that for you? 
So maybe you're one of the younger people in the congregation this morning. You're thinking, well, my purpose is to get the best exam results I can. After those exam results, get the best job I can. Get the wife, the husband, the, the home, the car. That's my purpose in life. Um, maybe you're, you're a bit older, a bit longer in the tooth like me. And you think, well, my purpose in life is to just... I, I, I watched Dead Poets Society the other day, guilty pleasure, I have to confess. And there's a, there's a phrase in that. Um, you want to you wanna seize the day, carpe diem, just suck the marrow out of life. That is the purpose of life, to just to get the most out of every minute. I want to say to you this morning, that's not enough. It's not enough. Th- those things are good. Don't get me wrong. And please, I don't want to get in trouble with your parents, young people. Work hard for your exams. Go for the good job by all means. Try and suck the marrow out of life in one sense. Yes, as a Christian, you can do that because you, you've got everything. Because Jesus belongs to you. So everything, in one sense, belongs to you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Get the most out of life by all means. But if that's it, if that's purpose for you, if that's the meaning of your life, I'm here to tell you on the basis of God's word and and from my experience in life so far, it's not enough. That will not get you through the hardest of times. It will not give you the hope that we thought about a few weeks ago at the start of our build-up to Easter. It will not give you peace with God as we thought about last week, and we thought about the Prince of Peace coming into Jerusalem, and it will not give you purpose. And that's what this morning's about. We thought about hope, we thought about peace, and we're thinking about purpose and what that means this morning. And Paul has got something to say about that. Paul basically said that if your view of purpose in life is Carpe diem, seize the day, suck the marrow out of life, get all the toys, take all the holidays, drink all the good wines, have the Instagram-ready life. If that's um, your purpose in life, he was saying, in effect, it's not enough. He quoted Isaiah and put it this way, that basically the, the way that it was put in those days, that way of thinking about life and purpose was, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Because if that's all you've got is this life, and making the most of it, you might as well think that way. Let's eat and drink. Let's make the most of it, guys, because tomorrow we die. That's as much purpose as you're going to get. We're thinking at this stage, boy, oh boy, I'm really glad I came this morning for Matt to bring me down. But this is what God's Word says, and this is the emptiness that Easter Sunday speaks into because yes people today dress this up differently they phrase it in a more sophisticated way you won't bump into a lot of people saying let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die at least I don't think you will but this is the way people think this is the way we as human beings think if we can't be sure of anything greater beyond this life then this life is the ball game this world is it get what you can make it last as long as you can eat and drink for tomorrow we die and over against this Paul speaks. It was a very, it's quite a dense, closely argued passage, wasn't it, that Elaine read to us. I'm not going to try and go through all those verses. There's a few verses I want to lift up that passage to speak to us, I hope, this morning. Because this is Paul's purpose. Paul had something that was ultimate. Paul had something that changed everything else. Every other calculation, every other enjoyment, every other pain in life, this thing that Paul had, this purpose, made all the difference. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
and the new and eternal world that that resurrection pointed forward to, that was what gave Paul purpose. It's the Easter Sunday purpose, meaning of life, if I can put it that way. And I want to give three main points to you this morning um, about the resurrection of Jesus. I, I think that the people with big brains call this a syllogism, these three points. Two statements followed by a third statement, which is um, a conclusion. There you go. So you can go home and tell people you had a syllogism in church this morning. Two premises and a conclusion. Three points. Here's the first one. Paul claims that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead offers purpose in this life and beyond. He doesn't use the word purpose, but I want to show that's exactly what he's saying. In our passage, right towards the end of our passage that Elaine read, verse 19, we read this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But of course, Paul does believe that he has hope in Christ, not just for this life, but for the life to come. So he does believe that Christians shouldn't be pitied, but actually they have purpose and they have hope. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing because some of the Christians in the city of Corinth were saying, well, the so-called Christians anyway, were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. Certain educated people uh, obviously felt that such a belief in the resurrection of dead bodies to new life was laughable. And Paul had to point out that the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of, Jesus, of believers that's linked to that resurrection of Jesus were both facts. They were both true. Paul's logic is this. If Jesus really rose to life after his death on the cross... So those who are joined to Jesus by faith will also one day bodily rise from the dead. And on the other hand, if believers aren't going to rise from the dead, then it's illogical to think that the one who claimed such nonsense, Jesus, was himself raised from the dead. And Christianity collapses. Let's be clear about that this morning. Paul was. If Jesus Christ didn't literally bodily rise from the dead 2,000 years ago, Christianity is worthless. It is a sham. And Christianity collapses because this truth is at the center of our faith. Whether the resurrection of Jesus is fiction or fact affects everything, including how you and I live right now. And whether the sole purpose of life is to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Or something far, far grander, far deeper, far more thrilling and fulfilling. And yes, scary too. That there is life after this life. There is life after death. Paul was painfully clear, if Jesus didn't rise, then either inevitable judgment or oblivion awaits. So drink life to its dregs, get all the best toys and all the best holidays and all the best Facebook memories and be kind to your nearest and dearest along the way if you can too, because that's it. Paul pitilessly takes this to its logical conclusion. If Jesus didn't rise, Christians are not to be admired but to be pitied. Did you hear some of the things that Elaine read out to us? If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, what are you coming along and listening to me and Dave every week for? Seriously, why waste your time? Go and do something better. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, he says a bit later, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we have all people most to be pitied. 
That's Paul's logical conclusion. See, Paul had no time for the idea that you hear circulating a lot these days that Christianity has got some great stuff in it that's worth hearing, even if Jesus died and stayed dead and his followers lied about it. Even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's a lot in Christianity that's worth having. You can still have Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the Apostle Paul, if he was here this morning, would say to you, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's empty. Christians are fools. It means that They are building their lives, Christians are building their lives and structuring their priorities around an event that didn't happen and is a monstrous fraud. The resurrection of Jesus and the hope of eternal life for believers. If Jesus didn't, listen, I think you're probably getting the point by now, but let me just drive it home before I get to my second point of the syllogism. If Jesus didn't rise, it's ridiculous to live for him, to say you live for him. If he did, it's crazy not to. That's basically what Paul's saying. If Jesus didn't rise, it's ridiculous to live for him. If he did, it's crazy not to. There is no logical middle ground for Paul, and centuries of believers who have lived and suffered and died for their faith would agree with that logic. Paul claims massive significance for the resurrection of Jesus. That's point one. So at that point, you might be feeling a little bit worried and a little bit wobbly because we're saying that Paul hung everything on a literal resurrection. But here's the second point, and here's where I think Paul was probably almost shouting as he dictated this. Point two, Jesus really rose from the dead. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So I think he said, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. I don't think he said this quietly. He believed this with with his everything, with all his soul, heart, mind and strength, that Jesus really rose from the dead. How, How do I know that Jesus really rose from the dead? Why on earth do I believe such story? One of the kids in school here, um, was it last week or the week before? I've lost track now. Two weeks ago, thanks Dave. Week before last, week before this week, we were doing assembly we were talking about what Christians believe about Easter. I was talking about the resurrection. Explained that that big R word means that Jesus was dead and he came alive again. And one of the kids in the front row, it's always one of the people in the front row. One of the kids in the front row, I think he was a year three kid, said, no, that didn't happen. That's impossible. You see his teacher at the back going, oh, no. But I was so pleased that he was listening and he was interacting. I can't remember what I said in reply. I've formulated a much better response since. But that's the reaction of human hearts. No, it's impossible. Well, here's the thing about that year three kid. He made a good point, but he overstated it. What I would say to him now if I was chatting to him this morning is, well, it certainly isn't normal. It's not normal for a dead body to come back to life. But to say that dead people don't normally rise from the dead isn't the same thing as saying it's impossible. The historian N.T. Wright makes the point that science basically tells us what normally happens in the universe by observation. But no one is claiming that the resurrection was normal and people normally rise from the dead. The question is, in a universe where God exists, is it possible? And the answer is, of course it is. And then the question becomes, did it happen? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And I believe it did. I believe it did because, like Paul, though rather less dramatically, I've met Jesus. 
I believe it did because I've come to find how trustworthy and reliable and authentic the Bible is. And I have believed, like Paul, the eyewitness testimonies contained in Scripture. Paul talked about that. He said, I've received what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And he goes on repeating this word, appeared. He, he rose and he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. Eyewitness testimony that stands up to scrutiny. But maybe... Quite possibly there's someone here this morning. You're not with me on that yet. You don't agree with me on that yet. You're not with Paul on this yet. Maybe the massive claim of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is just too much for you to get your head and your heart around and you find it hard to just simply believe the Bible. Well, I pray that'll change. I pray that'll change even this morning. But I also wonder if you'll find the following four facts helpful. I'm going to show them to you up on screen in a minute. Uh, there's a scholar called Gary Habermas. He's an American historian, a New Testament scholar, and he spent decades researching the historical evidence for the resurrection. He started as a PhD student, plagued with doubts, and he carried on through years of research, and that research gradually destroyed his doubts and strengthened his faith. His research has turned up certain, what he calls minimal facts. These four facts I'm going to show you. Minimal facts that are independently verifiable outside of the Bible. So if for the moment you're not convinced by the Bible, though I'm hoping you will be, then bear in mind that these four facts are verifiable outside of the Bible from other sources. And here's Habermas's point. These four facts, he says, even skeptical scholars overwhelmingly accept these facts are true. So I want you just to consider briefly this morning, if these facts are accepted by all sorts of people, atheists, agnostics, Christians, the whole shooting match, if these four things are generally accepted, what do they point to? Consider these because they may well help to clear away certain objections and certain obstructions that are stopping you coming to God's word and believing it. They will, I hope, clear the way for you to see that what the New Testament documents claim is absolutely true, that Jesus rose from the dead because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who brings hope and peace and ultimate purpose. So here they are, four, four minimal facts. Fact number one, Jesus was killed by crucifixion. Now the Gospels, of course, are very clear. That Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, written as historical documents, they're very clear that Jesus died and then three days later he was alive again. The rest of the New Testament confirms that's true. Verses 3 to 5 of our passage that I just read to you about Jesus appearing to all these witnesses claim that it's true. And in fact, those verses I read, most scholars, including skeptical ones, agree they were almost certainly um, put together as a creed in the early church about two or three years after Jesus died. That soon after his death, the church was reciting this creed. So that's what the Bible says. But even when you then go outside the Bible you find that it's also true that others testify to the fact that Jesus was a real person who died on a Roman cross. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says so. Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, says so. That The Jewish Talmud, Jewish tradition, all refer to Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a Roman cross and died. No serious historian that I'm aware of denies the basic facts of Jesus' existence and death. In fact, Bart Ehrman, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a thoroughly liberal scholar who basically says that the New Testament is not God's word and generally can't be relied upon. Even he, Bart Ehrman, says 
that the death of Jesus on a Roman cross is an indisputable fact. And yet, you still see churned out in the literature people coming up with daft theories saying that Jesus never really died. One of them, I don't know if you've heard of this one, called the swoon theory. Heard of this one, the swoon theory? Here's how it goes. basically says that Jesus was arrested. He was tried before Pilate. He was then flogged to the point that is... Uh, I don't need to go into the details, to the point that he was on death's door after having been flogged. He was beaten. He was hung on a cross for hours to dehydrate and to slowly suffocate. He dies, or at least as far as the Roman soldiers around him are concerned, and they're experts, he dies. They put him in the tomb, but actually he hasn't died. And in the coolness of the tomb, his body revives and he manages to roll the stone away, presumably get past the overpower of the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, appears to his disciples, persuades them that he's a victorious risen saviour, and they then go on to, complain, uh, to, uh, to proclaim that he had died and then risen from the dead. That's the swoon theory. What do you make of that one? Convincing? I think, I think not. Jesus was killed by crucifixion. Pretty much everybody agrees that's true. And in fact, number two is this. His disciples believed, after having seen him die and been put in a tomb, the disciples believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them. You, you just can't get around this truth. It's a fact of early church history and the earliest confession of the church, as we read there in 1 Corinthians 15, that the disciples believed they saw Jesus alive again, the one they'd spent all those years with. They told Jerusalem, Samaria, and the world they were persecuted for it. Most of the remaining 11 disciples died because they proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They all stuck to this truth they proclaimed until the end. Now you might say, yeah, but people, people will die for a lie, you see. You see these cults all the time. People will die for a lie. Yeah, but people won't die for something they know is a lie. They, they said that Jesus rose from the dead and they said they believed it because they'd seen him. And they then went on to die for it. What does that tell you? Then you get some other daft stuff coming up in response to that then. Um, people will then say, well, his appearances could have been hallucinations. But hallucinations, the experts tell us, are subjective, individual things. We really meant to believe that 11 of the disciples, plus others, plus the 500 whom Jesus appeared to, were all hallucinating the same thing all at once, and none of them ever changed their story. You can see why things like this um, hallucination theory and the swoon theory, they're being relied on less and less in the literature these days because people know they don't stand up. Such claims about his resurrection that Paul made were easy to disprove. 1 Corinthians was written when many of the witnesses were still alive. It would have been easy to kill off the baby Jesus movement by producing a corpse. And no one ever managed to. The Jewish leaders didn't, which is why they circulated the story they did, that the disciples had stolen the body. This reality is that even skeptical scholars and historians agree the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, and they were willing to die for that truth. What's the best explanation of that? Just those two facts so far, what's the best explanation of that? That there was a man called Jesus of Nazareth who lived who died on a Roman cross, and his disciples died for the truth that he'd appeared to them alive again. Fact number three. I love this one. 
Jesus haters and Jesus doubters came to believe in Jesus. So Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, hated Christ and he hated Christ's followers. But almost overnight, he turned from a persecutor of Christians to a missionary. Why? Something changed him. He had a lot to lose from proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God. And he had nothing to gain from proclaiming a risen Jesus. Unless he knew firsthand that Jesus had risen from the dead. James, Jesus' brother, strictly speaking, his half-brother. You read the Gospels and you find that Jesus' family didn't believe in him. Possible exception of Mary. They They didn't believe he was who he proclaimed to be. They didn't believe he was the Son of God. James was one of them. He certainly didn't. And yet, suddenly, after the crucifixion, after he's seen his brother die on a Roman cross, after that... He comes to believe that his brother is the son of God and proclaim him as such. He becomes an apostle and he becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. How do you account for a change like that? What would convince such a skeptical heart? The answer is seeing the resurrected Jesus, who, by the way, was his brother. And if anybody was going to recognize him, he would. These, these facts are all agreed or in huge part agreed by even sceptical scholars who don't accept the Bible as God's word. Jesus was killed by crucifixion. The disciples believed they'd seen him and Jesus haters and Jesus doubters like Saul and like James came to believe in him. Fact number four, it's the big one that no one could get past. The tomb was empty. Um, Gary Habermas estimates that 75% at least of scholars, including the sceptical ones again, Accept the historical reality that a few days after Jesus' death, his tomb was empty. Despite the massive stone and the armed guards, the tomb was empty. So the Jewish leaders, according to the New Testament, but according to other sources as well, circulated the story that the disciples stole the body. Why would they circulate that story? They placed a guard there ahead of time to make sure the disciples didn't steal the body. Jesus rises from the dead and they circulate the story that The disciples stole the body. Why did they circulate the story? Why didn't they just wheel out the corpse? Because there was no corpse to wheel out. They had to explain it somehow. They circulated this story because the tomb was empty and there was no body to produce. That would immediately have shut up these lunatic Christians who were making a pain of themselves in Jerusalem. But they couldn't prove them wrong. What do you make of that story then? I mean the story that the disciples stole the body. What do you make of that? You still hear that one quite a lot in some of the literature. You'll still hear it in some Jewish circles today. The disciples stole the body. Well, you've got to picture it. Picture what happened. The disciples have seen their Lord and their master and their friend crucified on a Roman cross. Spear plunged into his side. So blood and water come out the side. The Roman soldiers saying, yep, he's dead. You can get rid of him now. You can take him down from the cross. They've seen that happen. And then they're sitting around after he's been put in the tomb. And one of them says, presumably, I've got an idea. Let's go and steal the body. Let's overpower the guards. Let's roll the stone away. Let's steal the body and hide it. And then let's go and tell the world that our Lord rose from the dead. Let's go on to proclaim this to the whole world. And by the way, boys, we've got to be prepared to die for this truth. 
and not one of them ever changed their minds and recounted. How does that sound to you? How does that theory stack up? It's crazy, right? These four facts are just a few of the widely accepted facts among scholars of all types. They show the New Testament story to be coherent, consistent, and the only theory that fits all the facts that what the Bible says is true, that Jesus really rose from the dead. So those are the first two points. First of all, Paul hangs a lot on the resurrection. He says it's the one thing that gives true purpose. And then secondly, he says, and Jesus really did rise from the dead. He's alive. So I'm one of these crazies who believes this. That Jesus, the Son of God, has risen from the dead and is at the Father's right hand in heaven right now. He is here with us by his Spirit and he's coming back to raise the dead and to judge the living. What does that all mean? If those two things are true, Here's the third point, the, the, the conclusion, the last part to the syllogism. This means, if the second point is true, there is hope, peace, and purpose in this life and beyond. Maybe you grudgingly accept the likelihood of the resurrection being historical fact, as the Bible claims. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Please, please, please don't just say, so what? Don't just shrug. Please keep looking into this. Please keep searching. Please see the implications that the resurrection of Jesus means that he is who he said he is, the Son of God. That by dying on the cross, he killed the sin of the hearts of those who believe in him and defeated death. And that faith in him offers a future, a purpose, a meaning that could be eclipsed by nothing else. His resurrection shows that his death was a deliberate sacrifice for our sins that was accepted by a holy God who then welcomes us into relationship with him when we put our faith in the risen Jesus. And from that point on, as you follow him, everything you do, however hard life gets at times, everything you do has purpose and meaning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything, or at least it does if you believe and trust in him. You know, there's an old, uh, you may have heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's a question which says, what's man's chief end? In other words, what, what is humankind's main purpose? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And once you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and you give your life to him and you trust him, that then becomes your purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The resurrection changes everything. We've, we've um, been doing uh, Hope Explored as a church. We did it over the last few Sundays. We've done it with a few individuals in church as well. Great uh, little three-week course. And um, towards the end of that course, Rico Tice says this. I had to finish with this quote because I just think it's awesome. I think Tom's going to put it up on screen. The Bible doesn't ask you to shut your eyes and make a leaf for faith. Instead, it encourages you to open your eyes, look at the evidence, and make a step of faith. The Christian faith stands up to scrutiny. You don't have to close your eyes and take a leap of faith because it makes sense. And when you see it makes sense, you take that step of faith towards Jesus. 
and you give yourself to him and you ask him to be your Lord and Savior and this becomes your hope. This becomes your joy. This becomes your purpose. And everything changes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I believe by your Holy Spirit you are present with us here this morning. I believe, uh, along with so many here, that you were crucified under Pontius Pilate, that you rose from the dead, that you ascended to heaven and that you were returning one day. I believe these things are true. We believe these things are true because we trust your word, the Bible, and because we have met with Jesus by faith. And Lord, my prayer now is that nobody would leave this room this morning without having taken that step of faith towards you and said, I believe, Jesus, that you died on that cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead to take away my sin and to give me hope of a glorious future and to give me a purpose that I know I now live for you and I will glorify and enjoy you forever. Lord, Will you do that work by your spirit, I pray, in every heart here this morning. For the sake of Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.